we've come today to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be mainly focusing on uh, verse 42. However, we're going to really take in the whole chapter as we go through um, this verse. Um, and what I really want to get out of all of this is the heart behind what you see occurring here. I want to start out by asking a question of us all. Why are we here today? What is the reason we are come to church this day? Um, a reason for me would be I have come to preach. That is a reason. For you there could be many, could be, well it's the Lord's Day, it's church, how we go to church, or we visited so we've come to visit. But I believe that there is a better question to ask why we are here. And that is, what is our motivation? What is the motivation for coming to church? Not only it boils down to what is our heart? Why are we here? And, and these two, if you think about it, are very different questions. The reason and the motivation is different. For example, if it was um, an anniversary, for example, and well, a husband were to buy his wife an anniversary gift. The reason would be, it's the anniversary. The motivation, you would hope, would be love. Another motivation would be, maybe not to get into trouble and forgetting the anniversary, but it is all down to the motivation. There can be good motivations, there can be bad motivations. And what I want to look at here, and what I want to pull out, is the motivation of what we see of these people here. I am concerned um, about the reason, but the reason is only there because of the motivation, because of the heart's desire. Proverbs 21 verse 2 says this, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. You see, we may outwardly attend church, which is not bad. Let me be clear, it is not a bad thing to come to church. But we must understand what is the motivation why we do what we do. We can do bad things out of a good motivation, and that doesn't make it right. We can do good out of a bad motivation, and that is wrong. That is not right either. It doesn't cut it. But what we see here is a people doing a good thing out of, a, out of a good heart, out of a good motivation. So first, when we look at the people in verse 42, and it says that these people continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then it goes on to show that there was fear, there was signs and wonders done through the apostles, that they were selling their possessions and doing good and sharing with all men. They were of one accord they were doing the things that God had asked them to do. And this is a really wonderful picture of what the, te- the New Testament ch- church should be like. But who are these people? We need to understand who these people are first. Well, there is roughly over 3,000 believers here. We know that from what was said a few verses before when they repented of their sins at the preaching of Peter's sermon. So some of these are new believers who've come out of um, the Jewish faith into the New Testament church here to have faith in Jesus Christ. 
And we will now come to verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayer. We must understand what this word steadfast means. The word is um, proskate reo, which means to be attentive to, to adhere to, to be devoted to. So here we have a people who were devoted, who were attentive to the things of God. They were doing these things in care. And what I want to do now is briefly just have a look at these things that they were attentive to. It was, as we heard earlier um, at communion, it was to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And when we look at it in the light of they were doing this uh, in a steadfast manner, continually in a steadfast manner, it shows that they, they were doing these with a devoted heart. So let's look at these each in turn. And remember that we are really looking at steadfast people and the motivation behind what they were doing. Now, when it says the apostles' teaching, they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Um, It was mentioned uh, again earlier today. The apostles' teaching is what we have here. It's the word of God. The apostles were teaching the things that we see here because it's been recorded for us. We have the letters, we have the scripture, and we see Peter had preached and used the Old Testament. So we have an understanding of what was taught and what was being said. Now what I want us to really understand in this section, what I'm aiming towards, is what it means for them to do this in a steadfast manner, in a devoted manner. See, in this they must have spent time listening to what was being taught. Because you cannot be devoted something, devoted to something, unless you spend time doing this. And this is an easy application for us. Are we devoted to the apostles' teaching? Are we devoted to the words of God? Do we come together as a people to hear the preaching of the word? Well, clearly yes, for those that are here today. Do we read it in our own time? Do we let this form and mould us? Or are we devoted to other things that will form and mould our minds? Now, what I don't want to do is give a time. That would be legalistic. I, it would be, therefore, done in the wrong motivation. It would be done in a, well, the preacher has said, I've got to spend this time, at uh, this moment in the day, to do this. And it's done with a wrong motivation. But we must be a people who are devoted to the apostles' teaching. And to do this, there are several things we must do. We must engage with the word. We must be motivated to do this. In James 1.22, it says, but, <clears throat> but be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Be doers of the word and not hearers. Now, this isn't, again, we've got to be careful that we don't go into a legalistic framework, list off the things we must do, and we do them because it's a list to do. Again, we must have the right motivation. We are doers of the word because the word of God has moulded us. We do this out of a good and proper motivation. It is out of a love for God. 
So this is what we must remember when we come to the apostles' teaching. We do this out of a love for our God. So we must hear it and do what it asks of us, out of love and out of faith. We live it out practically. And again, this will come to the heart issue, which we will address later as we go back through Acts 2. We will jump back into what was said. We are also called to dwell on the scriptures. We are called to dwell. We are called to read them, but in a certain way to dwell on them. Philippians 4.8 Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue... If there be any praise, think on these things. So what is true? What is honest? Just, pure and lovely. Well, immediately what springs to mind is Jesus Christ, our Saviour. And how do we find more about our Lord and our Saviour? Well, we go to the word that he's blessed us. We, we go to the apostles' teaching. We go to the doctrines. We go to the word of God. So we will discover Christ in these and we will devote ourselves to the things that are lovely and pure and good. So this is what I believe was occurring here in verse, in verse 42 as they continued steadfastly in the, in the apostles' doctrine. Then it also, we move on to now the fellowship. The fellowship. So what does the word of God tell us about the fellowship and what possibly these people were doing? Well, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to do good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. So we are to meet together. We are to provoke one another unto love. Now that provoke can have a bad view to it. Provoke, if you were to provoke, provoke another into a negative behaviour. But here it's seen in a positive light. Provoke unto love. We are to push one another, to engage with one another, to encourage one another to do, to, to love and to do good works. And this is what we can guess is going on here in the fellowship. They're meeting together. And the evidence for this is when we go later on. What did they do? They sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. They continued daily with one accord together, breaking bread from their house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. They were together. They were sharing. They were giving. They were coming together as a people. This is what fellowship is. Now, again, we have to really be clear again, of what true fellowship is. It is these things, yes, but we must understand what it's not. Just a group of believers coming together to do secular activities. It might not be a bad thing. It might be meeting together for a chat, but true fellowship is when we speak and engage in the word of God. Together, we encourage one another to love and to good works. We want to build one another up. Iron sharpens iron, and this is what we are called to do in true fellowship. Biblical fellowship. 
And the aim of this, again, is to ultimately glorify our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We now come to the next, next aspect, which was the breaking of bread, which we did this morning here. Now, there are many views of what occurs here when it's mentioned that the, of the breaking of bread. Some believe that this was purely a meal. And thankfully, um, as Les was saying today in communion, that it is actually the breaking of bread, because that would have been a, an awkward situation if we'd have had different views from that. But he was saying, look, here is the breaking of bread, as he read from Acts 42. And the reason for this, is, I think we have to look into the context. What we have here is the apostles' teaching, doctrine, uh, the fellowship um, and prayers, and the breaking of bread in this. This is clearly worship. This is clearly worship. So part of worship that God has given us in his grace is the breaking of bread, is communion, to remember what Christ has done. And we see this in Luke chapter 22, verse 19. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the reason they were doing this, they were doing this to remember what Christ has done. It's, a rem- it's bringing to mind his sacrifice. It's also beneficial for us because the Lord has given it to us. It gives us spiritual nourishment. It grows us in our faith. And again, ultimately, it brings us to remember what Christ has done and brings about us a heart of thankfulness. And then we come finally to prayer. They were a people of prayer. Now, what could have possibly been taught about prayer? Well, I'm fairly certain that the people who were teaching here, they knew they'd met Christ, they'd been under his teaching, and what was one thing that Christ taught? It was the Lord's prayer, a pattern to follow. And if we turn to Matthew chapter 6, we can read that there. After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So there was a pattern there and we can be certain that these things came through to the new believers and to the gathered people here. So when we look at the Lord's Prayer, we can see that the pattern there, there would have been a showing of their dependence, total dependence on God, because basically that what is, that's what prayer is. We come to the Lord in prayer to praise him and to show that we are at his mercy. The reason we take our next breath now is because the Lord grants it to us. Because the Lord is so gracious to us. Where we would have deserved wrath, but for Christ we are saved. We are utterly dependent on our God. So the, it's showing a dependence. The, there was a praising of his name. There will have been a request for forgiveness. A deliverance from evil. There will have been praise. There will have been all, this ty- all these types of prayer going on to the Lord. 
as they were devoting themselves, continually, continued steadfastly in prayer. So, to summarise just purely this section for now, they are following the apostles' teaching. They are devoting themselves, being attentive to all the things that we have just read, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, to prayer. Now, we have to ask ourselves, what is the motivation for this? What is the motivation for this? We can see the um, impact of what they're doing as we go through the following verses. As I mentioned before, there was a togetherness, a unity. There was one mind because they were devoting themselves to these things. They understood what God wanted from them and they lovingly did that and did it out of honour. But what was it that motivated them in the first place to continue steadfastly in what we have just mentioned? Well, this is where we're actually going to jump back in this chapter because it's so important that we know why they were doing this. So I will quickly, briefly just go through this. If we look at verses 1 to 13, what do we find? Well, we find that the people are gathering at Pentecost. There are devout Jews at Pentecost. There's thousands and they're there to celebrate. We have Christ's disciples in the upper room. They are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come because Christ, before he ascended to heaven, promise this to them. The Holy Spirit comes. The believers begin to speak in other languages. The Jews from different nations hear this. They come and they understand it in their own language. There is a miracle happening here. Some were amazed and understood that there was something to be listened to here. There was something possibly of God. However, as always, and we find in our own lives, some doubted. We see when we share the gospel Even though it is true, logical, and good and lovely, some will doubt. These people mocked the believers and said, these men are purely drunk, all these people are drunk, it's just silliness. But then Peter stands and in verses 14 to 40 gives a great sermon. So why is this a great sermon? What is it that makes this a great sermon? Well, ultimately, we'll get to the point, but what makes this a great sermon is a thing the very thing that motivates the believers into their action and their devotion to the things of God. Well, is it great because in this he refutes their accusations? If we turn to verse 13, um, we see that he refutes what they said as they were mocking. Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. But then in verse 14, Peter says, that actually, it is not what you think. There is more to it to this. He then goes on to show that they are not, not drunk in verse 15, but because it is the third hour of the day. And then he goes from into what Joel in the Old Testament prophesied, that all the things that were occurring, the miraculous speaking of tongues, uh, other languages, was actually prophesied in Joel, and we see this in verses 13 to 41. He explains it there. Now, this isn't a bad thing. When we preach, we should bring the whole of Scripture together, old and new. So that's not a bad thing, but that is not the issue here that makes this a great sermon. Now, if you go to verse 41, what do we see? 
we see that many, many were saved. About 3,000 souls were saved. Is that what makes this a great sermon? Is this what motivates the followers? No, because we understand from God's word that numbers do not matter. You could fill a building very easily with thousands of people. We see it across the world that believe that they are gathering for the preaching of God's words, but it's not. It is purely superficial and not a worship of God. So numbers do not matter. Is this a bad thing? No, certainly not. If 3,000 souls come to salvation, praise be to God. But what we do, we measure by truth and that the word of God is being preached. So it's not these things that make this sermon great and it is ultimately the motivation for these people. Then what actually is it? Well, we come to this in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Then, in verse 36, Peter says this, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So what has Peter done here? What is one of the things that he has done that makes this a great sermon? He's pointed out sin. Now, in many places, this would not be seen as a great sermon because of that very fact. But when we look to scripture, we know that is a good and wonderful thing. Why is it a good and wonderful thing to point out sin? Time and time again, we hear in the world, that's just judging. The Bible says, do not judge. But that is a verse taken well out of context. We are called to judge. We are called to show people their sin. Not out of a heart that wants to build ourselves up by putting somebody else down, but because it leads to something else. You see, what Peter's done here, he said, look, what you see now is prophesied by Joel and it is pointing to Christ. Now it's pointing to Jesus. It's showing that this Jesus, he came. He was sent by God. He is God himself. And what did you do? You killed him. You crucified him. They're guilty of murder. They're guilty of murdering God himself. Now that does sound silly that God, the author of life, could be murdered. But we see this in Christ because Christ is God and man. So God cannot be murdered, but the but the man can. And this is what we see in Christ. This is why it's important to understand that Christ was both God and man. And Peter goes on to say, and he rose. He was brought back to life. He was resurrected. So here, Peter said, look, this is your sin. You're in serious trouble. You've broken the law of God. Remember, these were devout Jews. They knew the law of God. They knew that they were now in the hands of an angry and just God because of their sin. They knew that wrath would await. They knew 
that eternity in hell would be waiting for them. And it crushed them. And we see here when we get to verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Can you imagine the desperation at that point? They have really, really misunderstood who Christ was. They have killed him. They have handed him over to be crucified. They are desperate to know what they can do. Not in the sense of works, that they could earn the right, the righteousness themselves. Because remember, devout Jews, they knew this. They knew it was only through God that they could be saved. They were desperate to know if there was a way out. So their hearts had been pricked. They acknowledged their sin and that they were an enemy of God. And they were asking how they would escape. And then this is the second part that makes Peter's sermon great. If he had finished there, and that was all that he had said, that in itself would not be a good sermon. It would not be a great sermon because it would have missed one thing out. But Peter doesn't. What does he do? He gives them the gospel. Acts 2:38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There it is. He's given it to them. He's saying, look, like everyone, you were guilty before a holy God, but there is salvation. It's in the name of Christ, and he, and in that there will be remission of sin. In Christ, they are forgiven. Their sin placed on Christ on the cross. Jesus' righteousness placed on them. Their debt, their unpayable debt in their own strength, has been paid for. And no longer is the wrath of God on them, but the wrath of God was on his son, Jesus Christ, instead of them. And this is the faith in Christ, isn't it? It's not their own doing. For us who believe, it's not our own doing. It is a gift from God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ was made sin for us. He knew no sin. He was spotless. He was blameless. And this was why he could be our sacrifice for those that have faith in him. Ephesians 2.8-9 For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of work, works, lest any man should boast. Here is the gospel. This is what was given. So for those that don't believe, who will be under the wrath of God, there is a way out. It's not their own strength. It is not their own works, because we would never be able to pay off the debt that we owe God through the sin that we have committed, the sin nature that is in us, it has to be through purely the work of God. So then let's go back to verse 42. Now we jump down and they continue steadfastly in the apostle, in the apostles doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So what is their motivation? When we look at this and we go back, Their motivation is Christ and him crucified. God has worked a good thing in them. 
He has softened them hearts, softened their hearts so they could hear the gospel, respond to the gospel. He has blessed them with the gift of faith so that they are no longer condemned. Now remember, these were devout Jews. They knew the God of the Old Testament. And now they understand that it is the same God in the New Testament. It is Christ himself. They understood the cost of their salvation. And this is why they were steadfast, because they understood that Christ had died for them. And in response, they loved him, they wanted to honour him, and they wanted to live a life so that he would be glorified because of who he is and what he has done. And this is why they submitted to the apostles' teaching, to love one another in fellowship, to remembering Christ through communion, and to going to God in prayer, because they understood the cross and that Christ had died for those that believe. So let's bring it back to us now. What is our motivation? Why are we here? What was our answer in our minds? Well, it should be because Christ is our motivation. We are here because we love him. We are here because we understand the cost of salvation. We are here because we want to be under the apostles' teaching so that we can be taught more of Christ who we love and adore. We want to be here to have fellowship so we can build one another up. We can care for one another because of what Christ has done for us. We want to take communion because it is reminding us of the cost of faith and salvation that Christ's body was broken and his blood spilt for us. And we go to him in prayer because we know that everything we have Everything we do is because God is gracious and good towards us. And that in salvation, we have faith in Jesus Christ. And this is because he is our hope, our peace, and our saviour. And in salvation, it shows the greatest act of love from a good and holy and just God. Now, I would like to finish now with Romans 5, verse 8. But God commandeth his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us.